All right. Well, tonight we're going to turn our attention to the calling of Matthew. This appears in three of the Gospels. You have it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What I find so um, interesting about the calling of Matthew is that we have backstories for so few of the apostles. Have you ever really thought about that? When it comes to the apostles, there are only seven of the twelve that we have any information prior to their following of Jesus. You have Peter, Andrew, James, and John, which we hear about the most, those, those uh, four that were fishermen together, and, and we have their calling along the Sea of Galilee. In, in John's Gospel, you have mention of Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is likely Bartholomew, uh, just another name for him. We have their story in, in John chapter 1, where we have Jesus being introduced to them. So we have that as well. So that gives you six. The seventh is Matthew. And we're going to talk about his story tonight. Uh, his is, is quite unique when you really think about it. And I think it has some great lessons in it for us to learn and, and, and gain from. But he's one of only seven of the apostles that have any backstory prior to their following of Christ. And so I think that's worth mentioning. Like, I would love to know more about how Judas became an apostle, how he was selected. And then you got guys like Simon the Zealot. I'd love to know his story and how Jesus encountered him. But that is not revealed to us, so we, we only have this select seven. So tonight we're going to focus in on Matthew, and let's uh, read through the three texts, as always. We'll start with Matthew, then we'll read Mark's, and then we'll read Luke's consecutively. Uh, they will be projected on the screen if you want to follow along there. Let's start with Matthew's account. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 9. It's the verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark's account. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him and the scribes of the Pharisees. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." And then we've got, finally, Luke's account, recorded in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those are the three accounts of the calling of Matthew. So let's dive in and talk first and foremost about the main character of the story other than Jesus. Let's talk about Matthew. The individual to whom uh, Jesus said, follow me in Capernaum, is identified as Matthew in Matthew's gospel. But in Mark and Luke's gospel, he's identified as Levi. Now, this appears to be another one of those situations that we can find in the New Testament where an individual has two names. This was common practice among first century Jews. Some would have a uh, Hebrew Aramaic name and then they would have an additional Greek or Latin name. Saul was a case of this. Saul, who would become Paul. Now others possessed two different Semitic names. Such was the case with Simon, who we know as Peter. Simon, who had the nickname Cephas. Cephas was an additional Aramaic name, but it was a nickname. In this instance, Matthew seems to have two names, Matthew and Levi. We have no explanation for it. We don't have any background information on, on where these two names came from or which one he typically used. In the case of Simon Peter, we're going to see a transition from Simon to Peter. In the case of Saul and Paul, we're going to see a transition from Saul to Paul. We don't have that kind of backstory on Matthew's name. We just know that in, his, um, in the gospel he wrote, he refers to himself as Matthew. And in the other gospels, he's referred to as Levi. Uh, the name Matthew comes from the Aramaic word for gift of God. And Levi is obviously a name descending from the 12 tribes, if you think back to there. It's very interesting because while Mark and Luke will use the name Levi in this story, when you go to the listing of the apostles' names, which is provided in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, always Matthew's name. Levi is never the name used in the list of the apostles. That's why when we sing the song, we never say Levi. So from here on out, I'm going to refer to him as Matthew because, well, the apostle lists don't lie, right? So we're going to go with Matthew tonight, but he does have this additional name, Levi. We don't want to overlook that fact. We do not know why he has that additional name, but he does. Another detail we find out is that Matthew is identified as the son of Alphaeus in Mark chapter 2 and verse 14. What's so very interesting is that another apostle is identified as James, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3, Mark chapter 3 and verse 18, Luke chapter 6 and verse 15, Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. All four listings of the apostles identifies this James, son of Alphaeus. Very interesting there is a shared father's name. Now, in fairness, there's more than one Alpheus around, sure. 
It's quite likely that these two guys just share a father's name, not a father. But could it be possible that they were brothers? Could it be possible that there's a relationship here? We've already, we, we already know in Jesus' recruitment of disciples, he's recruited some siblings, right? There was Simon and Andrew were brothers. And then you've got James and John, they were brothers. Two sets of brothers we already know about. There's even a possibility that Philip and Bartholomew could have been brothers. Or could have been relatives, I should say that. There is even that possibility. That one we don't have any definitive information on. But uh, when you look at the account in John chapter 1 of how Jesus interacts with Philip, and then Philip takes him to Nathaniel, who is the other name for Bartholomew, it's very, very similar to Andrew recruiting Peter, so there might be some uh, family tie there as well. But Matthew and, Al- uh, Matthew and James, who, let's be fair, this is not James the brother of John. This is sometimes referred to as James the Less. But that throws a whole other wrench in the situation. Do you know why he's called James the Less? Or more modern translations, more, more recent translations will say James the Younger. That's the identification uh, given to him in uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. I should say that's the identification given to a James in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. Now Mark chapter 15 and verse 40 tells us the women that were present at the crucifixion of Jesus. I've referenced it before because I used it to to contend it's possible that that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are two of the fishermen who are original disciples, how they could possibly be related to Jesus' cousins. But in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40, one of the women that's present there is a woman named Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. Now that's interesting. Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph. If you were to go look at John's gospel and the listing of the women present at the crucifixion, it's in John chapter 19 and verse 25, and there's a Mary there, an additional Mary, who's the wife of Clopas. And if these, uh, if these even out correctly, if the, if the four, if the, excuse me, the three women who are mentioned in Mark's gospel are the same three women that are mentioned in addition to the mother of Jesus in John's gospel, then that would mean James and Joseph's father is Clopas. But I've been contending that James' dad is Alphaeus. Maybe Alphaeus and Clopas are names that, kind of like Matthew and Levi, or Peter or Simon and, and um, Peter, or Saul and Paul. But if that's the case, then why in Mark chapter 15 would James, excuse me, would Mary be identified as the mother of James and Joseph rather than James and Levi. Now, I don't know if you followed that rabbit hole. It was totally unnecessary for me to go into all this. I just am fascinated by it, so I talk about it. That's the privilege of being the guy up here. My whole point is this. There's a possible connection between Matthew and this particular James, but there is evidence in Scripture that might contradict it as well. If you look at the last name of the fathers in this list of apostles, they might be related. But if this particular James, the son of Alphaeus, 
as he is often identified as the, the uh, James the Younger or James the Less, as we've often heard, then he's got a different father's name in Mark chapter 15 and a different brother's name in Mark chapter 15 as well. So it, th- there's some strangeness going on there. But let me point this out about James, the son of Alphaeus. In every listing of the apostles, he either immediately follows Matthew's name or has one name between his and Matthew's. It's Matthew and James, followed by James the Less, or it's Matthew, then Simon, then James the Less. Simon as in Simon the Zealot. Now, what's interesting is if you go look at Peter and Andrew's names in every list of the apostles. It's Peter, then Andrew, or it's Peter, James, and John, then Andrew. It's always in that order. So it's interesting. If they were siblings, it would be very similar to Peter and Andrew in the way it's even listed among the apostles. Just throwing that out there. Anyway, so Matthew might have a brother. We don't know. And that was a good uh, uh, wasting of 10 minutes right there, wasn't it? Now let's talk about Matthew's job. That's the part that really stands out about him. He has a particular occupation as a tax collector. It's interesting to me because this is like the one occupation from the first century that we still resonate with, that we can, we can, we can still get, we still get and, and even the visceral reaction to it is still the same today as it was then. He's a tax collector. Now, we're told that specifically in Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. Matthew and Mark don't specifically identify his occupation, but it's inferred from the fact that he's sitting at the tax booth tax booth in both of their gospels, and when they go to dinner at Matthew's house, there are other tax collectors present. So uh, it's inferred in Matthew and Mark, but Luke is very specific. He's a tax collector. Now, what kind of tax collector is he? Matthew likely collected customs for Herod Antipas. When we think tax collector in Matthew, we tend to think, oh, he collected taxes for Rome. Well, the fact that they are in Capernaum when this occurs doesn't really lend itself to him being a Roman tax collector. It favors more a tax collector for the local government. See, the tax office at Capernaum would be concerned with tolls on the goods that were crossing the frontier of Herod Antipas's tetrarchy. Either when they're coming across the Sea of Galilee or coming via the main road through that town. So it's more than likely the case that Matthew has a tax collecting booth set up where he's fielding uh, customs, basically, for Herod Antipas rather than for Caesar. Now, that doesn't make him any better because the Jews hated the fact that Herod Antipas was the king of Galilee, among a few other little regions. They hated that there was someone on the throne that shouldn't be there. And the Herodian dynasty of which Herod Antipas was a part, they were collaborators with Rome anyway. So even though the tax or the custom, customs that, that Matthew was gleaning were, primar- were likely primarily for Herod Antipas, it's still associated with the occupation of the, the Israelite land by an outside force. That's the mentality towards it. So just the, the fact that he may be doing this for Herod Antipas doesn't make it any better. What's interesting is his tax booth could likely have been 
on the docks of the Sea of Galilee. Because a lot of the, the, the taxation that he would be doing would be taxing the commercial fishermen who were coming in from the lake with their goods. And what were the, the first four disciples' occupation? What was their occupation? Fishermen. You know how many, we have a ton of stories about Jesus getting on those boats and going out on that lake, don't we? Every time, he, he is, every time they went, traveled out there onto the Sea of Galilee, whether they're crossing to go to another town or they're out there for Jesus to, to teach from the boat or, or he's directing them in a great catch of fish, every time they dock, it's quite likely they had to pass that tax booth. They had to walk right past Matthew. So Matthew, in fairness, had a front row seat to the life of Jesus from his tax booth. Now, I've already alluded to this, but we need to pay particular attention to the feelings that Jewish people had towards tax collectors. They hated them. See, we can uh, relate. We can relate to the Jewish people in their feelings towards tax collectors. We feel the same way about the IRS, don't we? we that was very... That, Wow. But we, 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 we have that same sentiment towards somebody taking our money. And so we get this. And it's fascinating that Jesus is going to choose someone of the profession to be one of his closest followers, one of the people he's going to hand the baton off to, so to speak. But here's why they hated tax collectors. Number one, because they viewed them as traitors. The uh, tax collectors of the day were considered traitors to their own people because they were agents of the Roman occupiers. Moreover, they were considered to be thieves. Because here's how it worked. If you're a tax collector, you, you kind of had to know somebody. You had to, that wasn't a job like you went to school for or you know that sort of thing. It was a job that you got appointed to. And here's the way it's worked. Herod Antipas or Rome, depending who you're collecting taxes for, would tell you how much you have to tax each person, how much they're going to collect from each person. You then, as the tax collector, got to decide what amount you were going to tell them they had to pay. Because you would tack on your own fee on top of what you're required to turn over to the local authority or to the, the government of Rome. So let's say that Rome says, all right, we need 5% of their income from each person. Well, they don't tell the citizens that. They tell the tax collector that. He then turns around and tells the citizens what they have to pay. And he's going, okay, they got to pay 5%. Well, I'm going to charge them 15%, keeping 10 for me, and I'll send the 5 off to Rome or to Herod or to whoever. That's how they could make a lot of money. And you don't come across a tax collector in the Bible who wasn't filthy rich. They were always well off. And so that's one reason why um, the, the Jews hated them. One was because they're cooperating with the occupiers of the land who don't belong there, but they're also unclean because they're engaging in deceptive practices and, and because they're... They're extorting money, in a sense. There's a rabbinic tradition that said tax collectors were unclean and that they passed their uncleanness on to whatever they touched. So their money, which was gained by dishonest means, 
was not welcome in the synagogue or in the temple. They were not allowed to serve as, um, they were not allowed to give testimony in a, a court legal proceeding because they were unclean. That was the mentality towards them. Hated because they were traitors for cooperating with uh, governing authorities and hated because they were known for being unclean in the sense of dishonest, in the sense of stealing, essentially, from people. So Matthew's occupation would have made him an outcast from Jewish society. He would be one of those guys nobody wanted to have anything to do with because of his job. Now, as this particular account unfolds, we see Matthew make an incredible decision. It's fascinating to me because Jesus just walks up to the tax booth. Matthew is on the job, and Jesus says two words, follow me. And what happens? If you look at Luke's account, and Luke's is the, 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 more impo- the best account here. Luke says in v- chapter 5, verse 28, Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. Now, I want you to wrap your mind around that. Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. He's sitting in the tax booth. Do you, can you imagine how much money he's surrounded by in the moment? Can you imagine him getting up from the tax booth and leaving instantaneously to follow Jesus? Now, here's the thing. We've kind of already been conditioned for this. Because earlier in Luke chapter 5, if you go back to verse 11, we're told that four guys left everything and followed Jesus. Do you remember who those four guys were? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And so in Luke chapter 5, you have reference to, to the original four disciples and Matthew. They all left everything and followed Jesus. As far as I know, that this is the only occasion that that idea of, these are the only two occasions where that idea of leaving everything and following Jesus are said in the context of one of his apostles. But I think Matthew's decision is more incredible than Peter, James, and John's. And here's why. Oh, let me get through these pieces of information that I've already talked about and forgot to put up there. Here's why I think Matthew's decision is more incredible. First, there is no recorded evidence of any previous direct contact between Matthew and Jesus. We talked about Peter, Andrew, James, and John's decision in the context of all the interactions they had with Jesus prior to his summons to follow him. They were present at the wedding at Cana before they were asked to follow Jesus. They witnessed the water-to-wine miracle before they were asked to follow Jesus. If you follow Luke's chronology, they witnessed Peter's mother-in-law being healed of a fever before Jesus asked them to follow. They witnessed an exorcism at the synagogue in Capernaum before Jesus asked them to follow. And they witnessed uh, the sun, what I call the sunset healings before Jesus asked them to follow, if I'm not mistaken. They witnessed some miracles before Jesus asked them to follow. And 
I've contended that there's a possibility of James and John being the cousins of Jesus, which provides a family relationship that would have preceded Jesus asking them to follow him. There's a lot of exposure between Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You have to even remember that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, that's the Son of God. Go follow him. And Andrew went and started following Jesus. And then went and got Peter and said, come on, I found the Messiah. Let's go. There's all this exposure for those four before they're asked to follow. Matthew doesn't have any of that recorded. Now, I have to concede. He appears to be a resident of Capernaum. And there's been miracles happening around Capernaum. There's the leper healed, the paralytic was healed, so on and so forth. There's all these things happening that he could have been exposed to. He may have been watching from his tax booth as Jesus taught, as Jesus healed, as Jesus went in and out of town. He may have been exposed to all that, but it's not the same. It's not on the same level as what Peter, Andrew, and James, and John have been exposed to. And so I commend Matthew for this. I'm impressed by Matthew because he's had less contact than these other four. But here's the other thing. When he made the decision to leave everything and follow Jesus, he made a huge sacrifice. Think about Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They left everything and followed. But if this whole following Jesus thing didn't work out for them, they could always go back to fishing. Hey, in fact, after he died, they did. After his death, even after they witnessed his resurrection, guess what they did? They went out on the Sea of Galilee and they did some more fishing. They could do that. When Matthew walks out of this tax booth, there's no going back to the tax booth. That position is going to be filled by Herod Antipas quite quickly. And Matthew's never going to be trusted again. There's no going back to his old life when he follows Jesus. He's hated by the Jews because of his job. He's now going to be hated by the uh, authorities because he's abandoned his post. There's nothing for him to go back to. When Matthew makes the decision to leave everything and follow Jesus, he's making a complete, total sacrifice here. And here's what's really neat about Matthew's story. Is that Matthew doesn't just start following Jesus. Matthew says, hey, let's have dinner. And if you read there in, in uh, Luke chapter 5 and verse 29, you find out that after he makes his decision to follow Jesus, Matthew made Jesus a great feast in his house. Matthew hosts a dinner for Jesus. Now, this is not unheard of. Jesus, throughout, his, uh, throughout the Gospels, he'll be invited to several meals in the homes of people. Uh, he'll be invited to um, uh, Simon's house where a woman will an anoint his feet and, and he'll speak in a parable of the two debtors. And, and you have this meal of, of Simon hosting Jesus in his home. A, a very similar story will happen when in, in, another, in, in a Simon's house where Lazarus is present after his resurrection and you've got Mary anointing Jesus' feet in that instance. And there's two very similar stories, but they do seem to be different stories. You also have Jesus dining with Zacchaeus. Now, Jesus did kind of 
invite himself over for that one. But Zacchaeus was excited to have him in and to feed him. We see Jesus dining with people. So that's not new. But Matthew chooses, after becoming a follower, to host a feast for Jesus. This wasn't something that Matthew was doing for anybody else. He made Jesus a great feast in his house. But the most interesting thing about this is who he invited to the feast. Pay attention to who Matthew lets come to this feast. Now, Jesus' disciples are obviously invited, but in addition to that, Luke chapter 5 and verse 29 identifies the feast's attendees as a large company of tax collectors and others. If you really want to know who the others are, just go to Mark chapter 2 and verse 15 because he just calls them sinners. Just real simple, they're just sinners. So Jesus is at Matthew's house having dinner, and Matthew has made arrangements for tax collectors and sinners to be present. We don't read anything about religious leaders, synagogue officials, government leaders, elders of the community. We don't read anything about those significant people. We just read about a bunch of outcasts. What happens here is that after Matthew starts following Jesus, he creates an opportunity for his outcast friends, colleagues, and acquaintances to meet Jesus. His instant reaction to becoming a disciple is to connect Jesus with the people that he knows. How beautiful is that? We've already, we can already admire Matthew because he gave up everything to follow Jesus. But we've got to admire him as well because the, his first instinct is, hey, I need to tell everybody I know about Jesus. What better way to do that? Then introduce them to him. And he's introducing Jesus to the very people that Jesus wants to be around. The people that need him. If you and I were hosting a dinner for somebody as important as Jesus, we would try to come up with the best guest list possible. We would be inviting any prestigious person we have any contact with. We would be calling people and saying, hey, do you know somebody famous? Let's, let, I need to get them over. Do you know somebody significant? I need to get them over. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew's inviting a bunch of outcasts just like himself to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's where the problem arises. I mentioned last week as we studied the healing of the paralytic that that particular story uh, put, set in motion a series of about five stories in a row that have a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. This is another one of those stories with such a conflict. And you'll see it from the, because the Pharisees immediately start critiquing what Jesus is doing. And so you'll notice their issue, Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. It says, The Pharisees and their scribes, grumbled at his disciples saying why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners now i didn't spend any time studying this part of the verse but it stands out to me it's interesting to me they didn't say this to jesus 
their complaint was directed towards his disciples as if they don't have the courage to take it to Jesus. That's not the case. Maybe, maybe they just uh, didn't have the opportunity to speak directly to Jesus at the moment. Maybe his disciples came out inside the house and were talking to him. But they, it doesn't seem that they're in the house. It seems that they're standing at a distance observing this. They're watching Jesus go in. Now, you do have to remember that the structure of houses in this time period you would have large outside courtyards. And it's quite possible that the meals actually taking, outside, taking place outside in this courtyard where from the rooftop of a house you can watch everything going on. Or they can just simply be standing outside and they're watching the people walking in the door and they're like, oh, that's a tax collector. That's a tax collector. Oh, that's a sinner. And they're just naming all the people going in. They know that they're unrighteous. They know that they're unclean. And, and so they, they can see who's assembling around Jesus in this house just by who's entering. See, in this culture, in the Jewish culture of this time, sharing a meal with someone was a mark of intimacy. Now, we actually understand this. We understand that when you sit down for a meal with somebody, there is some sort of intimacy happening. That's why we don't just invite anybody over to our house, right? Or that's why we're, we're selective about who we go to lunch with. We understand that there's something, something deeper going on when we sit down over a meal with somebody than if we're just standing next to them and talking in public. There is some degree of intimacy when you dine with somebody. And in the Jewish culture, this was especially the case. Invi one author said inviting another person to sit down at a table for the purpose of eating a meal had become by this time a ceremony that conveyed the friendship and unity of the relationship. Now, it's very interesting because the importance of this type of fellowship becomes very evident in the first century church. It, it, skipping ahead, just, just thinking in terms of how important, the, how, how uh, significant the intimacy is of, a, of, a, of eating together. Think about this. When you get into the church in the book of Acts, the church experienced fellowship problems early on because of racial biases, the, the Jew-Gentile relationship. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 2, which I referenced on Sunday, where, where Peter would dine with the Gentiles until Jews showed up, and then he wouldn't fellowship, he wouldn't eat with them anymore. He would only eat with the Jewish people because he didn't want to demonstrate that level of intimacy with these Gentiles. Or you can, you, you'll notice that the church had problems uh, uh, early on because of socioeconomic biases. In 1 Corinthians 11, where we have these beautiful instructions regarding the Lord's Supper, we read about how there was this issue going on in the church in Corinth where they were, they were having a potluck and the Lord's Supper all rolled into one event. And what was happening is the wealthy people, they would go on and eat as much as they, they want and they would eat early wouldn't wait on the poorer people who couldn't get there on time, who couldn't bring food with them. And you had this fellowship problem within the church, and they had allowed the Lord's Supper to become a part of it. You see, biases were a problem that manifested themselves in the first century church through their eating together. And they had to be confronted and corrected, and we read about that. And then think about this. In the first century church, when church discipline had to be administered, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
what was the instruction that you were given when you had to, to involve church discipline, a.k.a. disfellowship? Christians were instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 not even to eat with a brother who was living in immorality. Because that was an indicator of intimacy. I say, I provide all those examples to just set up this understanding of how the Pharisees are thinking. And for them, it was scandalous that someone who's a righteous man would fellowship with unrighteous people. And they felt that they had biblical backing for it. A passage like Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It implies distancing from the wicked, from the sinners. There's also Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20, which says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's a great piece of advice right there. That is inspired, divine words about not hanging around foolish people. They think that as saying, hey, we shouldn't fellowship with someone who's not righteous. Same thing happens with Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 7. It says, leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Again, great divinely inspired instruction about wisdom and foolishness. But they took that as saying, hey, don't be around the unrighteous. So they would use verses like these, passages like these, to support their case that you don't dine with the unrighteous if you are righteous. So it's unthinkable to them that Jesus is going to eat with tax collectors and sinners. I made reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 because they kind of had that same principle about them, about distancing yourself from uh, sinners and that sort of thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, bad company ruins good morals. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I bring those passages up because they are important passages that we need to know. They have application in our life about how we, uh, we, we need to be careful who we associate with and that sort of thing. But if you just think about those passages and you take them to the legalistic extreme, it's very easy for you and I to become just like one of these Pharisees who's saying, don't eat with somebody who's a sinner. If we take it to the legalistic extreme, we could be just like them. That's what they're doing with the Old Testament. So Jesus is in this house eating with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees can't comprehend why he would do such a thing. In their eyes, he has just made himself unclean because he's, in, he's associating with the unclean. But now let's pay attention to Jesus' response. And for this, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13 in particular. Because Matthew has a little bit more content for Jesus' response than the other Gospels do. Here's what Jesus says to their criticism. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's think just a moment about each statement Jesus makes here. First, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I've added the word do on the screen because I don't like the way the English grammar works here. I feel like it needs that word. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Jesus' ultimate point when he says this is that, as one author said, for him to refuse to associate with sinners would have been as foolish as for a doctor not to associate with the sick. What is a doctor's job? To make sick people better. And if the doctor doesn't come around the sick people, he can't do his job. If he won't associate with the sick people, he can't do his job. What's Jesus' job? To seek and save who? The lost. If he's not around lost people, he can't do his job. That's why he came to earth, because everybody on earth was lost. If he didn't come here, he couldn't fulfill his God-given assignment. So Jesus is indicating to these Pharisees that these are the people who need me, who need a Savior. Then he tells them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Interestingly, the phrase, go and learn what this means, was a a well-known rabbinic statement. It was used by Jewish teachers when they were implying a deficiency of knowledge on the part of the questioners. It's Jesus' way of saying, you don't know God's word. It's it's Jesus' way of saying, hey, you need to learn something. You need to go back and re-educate yourself. So he's treating the Pharisees as those in need of learning rather than as the, the teachers that they thought they were. And he's quoting Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Now, only Matthew actually records this reference to Hosea. It's a passage Jesus would quote again uh, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7. But he's quoting from the Old Testament and saying, you need to go back and learn this. You need to go back and re-educate yourself on what is said in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's where his quote's coming from. He's using a um, Semitic idiom here for his argument. There's a Semitic idiom that would often say, not this, but that. I, I know, it doesn't, it's very simple. But this, it was a, is a, is a form of argument in their culture. Not this, but that. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't need this. God doesn't need your sacrifice. He needs this. He doesn't need sacrifice. Or he doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires you to have mercy. Not this, but that. 
So Jesus points out that in order for him to do his job, and really in order for anybody who's in leadership spiritually to do their job, they've got to be around sick people. And then he goes on to say, you need to learn more about mercy. You don't understand mercy. And then he concludes with this statement, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Bible consistently teaches that no one is righteous and that the call to repentance is universal. These guys didn't get that. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they really thought they could earn their righteousness. They thought they could so keep the laws that they could earn righteousness. It's the critique that Jesus has against them consistently throughout his ministry. Because they constantly think they're capable of being righteous on their own. And he's calling on them to recognize differently. You know, the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees in this whole event, it lies in their conception of priorities in the will of God. The Pharisees' first priority is obedience. Let's check the boxes. Let's make sure we're doing everything the right way. For Jesus, the priority is people. Lost people. And he's trying to, in this moment, respond to the Pharisees so that they could understand that God has a different set of priorities than they do. Now, every week I like to do this, conclude by talking about what we can learn from this particular story. And there are three things I want to highlight in our closing minutes tonight. We learn from the calling of Matthew that discipleship entails continuance and commitment. Look back at Luke chapter 5 and verse 28 for just a moment. In your English Bible, it says that Matthew followed Jesus. Now, follow is a past tense word. The way our English language works with that word, it sounds like it's something that happened at one point in the past, and it's done. In the Greek language, the word that's actually being translated there, it is the term for follow, but it's an inceptive, imperfect verb. One of y'all want to explain what that means to me? Brother Gene probably could. What that means is that this verse should be translated, or it would be better translated as, he began to follow. It indicates something that started in the past and continues into the present. And here's the point. Matthew didn't start and stop being a disciple that day. 
He just started being a disciple that day. It followed past tense, makes it sound like it happened then, and it, and it was done, and nothing else had to happen. But the way the Greek language actually works, it's using a verb that says, hey, it started today, and it continues on into eternity. That's what following is. Being a disciple is not a once-and-done thing. You don't come out of the water, and it's good. Some of us like to practice once baptized, always baptized. And it doesn't work that way. It's a constant, continuous, continuous life of discipleship. And Matthew models that for us when we understand the language here. The other thing about Matthew is not just that modeling that discipleship entails continuance, it also entails commitment. As we've already noted, Matthew left everything. And when you start to comprehend how much he gave up to follow Jesus, it becomes clear that Matthew understood that becoming a disciple isn't something you do half-heartedly. It's something that you go all in on. I've already talked about how Matthew lost his job security, but he also lost his financial backing. We've, we read about Zacchaeus in Jesus' life and how when Zacchaeus made the decision to uh, repent, he declared that he was going to um, repay everyone what he stole from them. And if he defrauded anybody, he was going to give how much back? How much? I mean, what times more? What he took? Four. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. We don't have an indication that Zacchaeus gave up his tax collecting job. He may have continued on as a tax collector and just changed his practices. But Matthew left the job. That cushy life he's been enjoying, those feasts like the one he threw for Jesus, they're going to come to an end because the money's going to stop flowing in. I wonder if that had an effect on his family. I wonder if it had an effect on his friends. If in making this decision to give up this lifestyle cost him more than just job security and uh, mortgage payments and things like that, but if it cost him social standing, cost him relationships, that didn't matter to Matthew. Because he understood that following Jesus came with a big commitment. A commitment he was willing to make. So when we look at Matthew's story, we should get a, a greater appreciation of what discipleship entails. In addition to that, we should learn the importance of ministering to outcasts. There are people on the fringe that are so easy for us to overlook for us to not consider when we are engaging in our evangelistic efforts. There are people that because of their social status, because of their lifestyle, we just never even take the gospel to them. Almost a they're too far gone approach. But when you think about Matthew, 
Matthew's got the one job in his society next to a prostitute, the one job that would be too far gone in the eyes of the Jewish person. And Jesus just walks up to the tax booth and says, follow me. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's so far an outcast that they can't come to Christ. And you look at the people Matthew invited into his house. They were all outcasts. He went after the ones that the Jewish people didn't want. And I want you to think for a moment, what would the outcasts of today be? It might include the homeless. That might include minorities. Prostitutes. Addicts. Homosexuals. But you know there are some Some, I call them more hidden outcasts. Divorcees. Single parents. Even the elderly can be among those outcasts that we forget about. Matthew reminds us of the importance of ministering to outcasts. And finally, we learn from Matthew's story that there is more than one evangelistic style. Now, that may not make sense right now. But we have this tendency to, to approach evangelism like there's a one-size-fits-all. Here's how you approach it. You go out there and you talk to somebody and you have a Bible study with them. That's how it's done. And some of us are really great at that. Some of us, that is a terrifying approach. We're not all made the same. We don't all have the same personality type. We don't all have the same set of skills and gifts and abilities. We're not all introverts and we're not all extroverts. We're this unique blend of characteristics that God has assembled in his kingdom. And God does not expect us to be uniform in our skills, our talents, our traits, our resources, our opportunities, or even our personalities. That's why in Romans chapter 12 he says, We have many members, but the members do not have the same function. We are all individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And I think that spills over into our style of evangelism. Some people are going to have that, that direct style where they can just walk up to somebody and start talking to them and bam, have that conversation. Peter could do that. Peter was as blunt of an individual as you could find and he could just walk up. And he, and he did this. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descended with tongues of fire in that room, and suddenly he walks outside and he sees an audience. And guess what? He walks out there and says, you're sinners! That's the 
Cliff Notes version of the sermon in Acts 2. You killed Jesus! That's the point he gets to in that sermon. It's as politically incredible sermon as you, as you could say in that moment in, in that time. But he's direct. Then you got Paul, the intellectual. He could reason and argue with anybody. I love Paul. You go to Acts chapter 17. He shows up in Athens. He's got a group of people gathered at the Areopagus. They're all philosophers. That means they're all brainy and smart and stuff. And they're all really religious. They just worship the wrong deity. And he goes in there and he doesn't quote a single verse. He walks up in, at the area of and he goes, hey, I'm going to quote from some of your own authors and prove to you that there's only one God. He's so intellectual in his approach to evangelism. But then you got Matthew. Matthew's approach is, I'm going to build off my relationships. He has this interpersonal approach. He's going to use his relationships and his associations with other people to his evangelistic advantage. I like the way one author said it. He said, unlike those who utilized, the other, uh, utilized other approaches, Matthew didn't confront or intellectually challenge the people at his dinner party, nor is there any mention of his telling them the story of what happened to him like a testimony. Rather, he relied on the relationships he built with these men over the years and sought to further develop their friendships by introducing them to Christ. The interpersonal style of evangelism is about utilizing and developing relationships with people outside of the faith so that you can influence them toward the faith. And so in Matthew, we're reminded that evangelism can be about relationships too. It doesn't always have to be about confrontation or intellect. It can be about relationships. And for some of us, that's comforting to know because we don't always feel like we fit the mold of how evangelism is supposed to work. And maybe Matthew shows us a different way. There's much we can learn from Matthew, but those are the three things I wanted to highlight in this lesson tonight. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer and then we will be dismissed. Lord God in heaven, we are thankful for another evening where we could study your word. We're thankful for the example of Matthew and Lord May we be more like him. May we be more like him in our commitment, and may we be more like him in our uh, evangelism. But Lord, we're grateful that your son calls us to follow him. Help us to do that better every day. It is through his name that we pray.